Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about everything you need to know about fertility drugs. That is an auspicious title, but uh, I think we truly cover it in today's show. I am Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast to get notice of each new episode. You can subscribe on whatever you are listening to right now, whatever app you're using, or you can go to our website and and click subscribe there. And our website where you can find the radio show is creatingafamily.org slash radio show. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring Pharmaceutical is pleased that they now offer the IVF Greenlight program, which provides discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. We also have Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to meet the client to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are a pioneer in offering embryo donation and adoption services to clients throughout the world through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. And Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years, and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Today we're going to be talking about everything you need to know about fertility drugs. When you find out you're infertile, you are thrown into a whole new world of medicine and and a whole new world of, of medications as well. It helps to understand what medications are going to be used to treat your infertility. And it helps to know how to use them and how to get the best price because the reality is is that fertility medications will make up a substantial portion of your infertility treatment cost. And for many people, their insurance does not cover this. So it's terribly important, I think, at the upfront for uh, you to understand uh, what the medications are and, and, and what they do. Our guests today to be talking about this are... Brian Marquis. He is a pharmacy director 
at Freedom Fertility Pharmacies. They are a specialized. They're a pharmacy specializing in fertility medication. And Dan McLaughlin, that he is a registered nurse and case manager at Freedom Fertility Pharmacy. This has been. Uh, this show was first recorded a couple of years ago and was very popular then, and I think it will be very popular now. And I think you will learn a lot. I hope you enjoy it as much as we have. Thank you all for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Now, as I told you, we're going to start, I told you before the show, I want to start with something really basic because I think sometimes we often, a lot of people are listening, a lot of our listeners are coming in at the very beginning where they realize they they are likely infertile. They are wanting, they are uh, right before or just beginning to start researching uh, infertility online. They are often pre-treatment. So I, uh, uh, some of our uh, other patients, of course, are in treatment and will know some of the information about fertility meds. But for this show, I want to start at some of the, of the most basic in a way because I, I think that we need to focus on what the different types of fertility meds are. Um, one way of organizing our talks is to start as 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 you would if you were going to infertility clinic for the first time, and that would be uh, often doctors will prescribe things such as either uh, clomiphene citrate or letrozole. So, uh, Stuart, let me start with you. How do those medicines differ? And and then we got a question that's talking about which ones are in generic form. So, if you could talk to us a little bit about clomiphene citrate and letrozole. Well, clomiphene citrate works on the uh, pituitary gland, and it basically it, um, it 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 promotes the uh, secretion of FSH and LH. Um, letrozole is a class of drugs that uh, is called aromatase inhibitors that works on estrogen to um, to actually you know ultimately do the same thing. So they work a little bit differently. Um, they're both available generically. Um, the cost of both of them is fairly, um, I wouldn't say it's insignificant, but it's fairly low compared to, um, you know, the injectable drugs. So it's, it's and, they're, and they're both readily available. You know, good, and I it's mean, usually the first line, you know, it's usually the first line that, that, that um, either an OBGYN might use or even in a fertility clinic itself. We've done a number of shows on talking about how many cycles are, are reasonable and things like that of that. And I was glad you pointed up. I, I sometimes fall into and have been corrected. I fall into the trap of saying they're inexpensive. Uh, and, in fact, although they're, it's probably the better way to say is that in comparison to other uh, fertility drugs, they are inexpensive. I, I, on one show, said something about them being inexpensive, and I got an email <laughs> afterwards saying, maybe for you. <laughs> well, it's but true. Even you know, gener- expense is relative, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, and I, I, yeah, I, I was put in my place rather quickly on that one. All right. All right. After a few cycles, as you mentioned, of either clomiphene citrate or letrozole, the infertility doctor might recommend either IUI with injectables or IVF. Let me just mention that we have done uh, a number of really great shows lately 
on uh, how to decide between those two procedures. Uh, one was, um, and uh, I think it was in February of this year, uh, and then the other one was just last week on the show uh, on infertility, uh, treating infertility in younger women. So I recommend, uh, it's a little off topic, but I do recommend each of those shows when understanding the difference, differences between IUI with injectables or IVF. But for the purposes of this show, uh, I, we're going to talk about the medications. So, uh, Brian, how, what medications are used for, or do they differ, first of all, uh, the medications you would use for the IUI with injectables uh, or IVF? At, at this point, we're moving into the whole line of gonadotropins. I would, uh, so, anyway, Brian, what uh, would you say about that? Sure, Don. Um, the medications for IUI and IVF are actually very similar. Uh, the difference between the two in IUI cycle uh, there's no down regulation, so you're just enhancing what the body would, would normally do. Uh, so we're, they're just beefing up a little bit on a follicle-stimulating hormone uh, to kind of stimulate the ovaries a little more than normal. Uh, they're hoping to get uh, normally more follicles than might normally be produced. And then they're also uh, giving uh, what they call a trigger injection, which would be um, either a human chronotic gonadotropin, um, or a, a recombinant version of that uh, to trigger ovulation so that you can time uh, insemination. And generally, there's not many other medications besides that. Um, the procedure is not as intrusive. If you go to IVF, um, there's different goals with IVF. Obviously, they're, they're trying to retrieve multiple follicles, um, and they don't want ovulation to occur by itself. Um, they're going to give much higher doses of FSH, in that, in that aim. Um, when they do that, they fear that ovulation will occur before they can do uh, egg retrieval. Uh, so they're, they're uh, what they call um, suppression drugs, uh, drugs that actually suppress the body's normal hormonal action so that the physician can control it. Uh, and they'll monitor with ultrasounds, and they'll try to make sure that everything's progressing correctly. Um, and then they do a similar trigger injection to IUI, uh, and then you do retrieval approximately 36 hours after. And and then there's a waiting game where they um, take the egg and match it with sperm, and they create an embryo, and then they do embryo transfer uh, about three days later. So very similar, just um, usually IVF, um, you know, it costs more. Uh, normally it's it's more successful, depending on the patient. Uh, so the physician can guide you to which one's better. They sometimes they'll try IUI first, uh, especially some insurance companies might require uh, IUI to be performed uh, first before you go to IVF. Uh, sometimes it's a decision between the physician and the patient, but the physician normally talks to the patient, and they can try that. You know, they can figure out which one is, is best for the patient. Yeah, it's interesting. We some of the the, the two shows I mentioned, uh, we're seeing a shift now with some of the research that's being done um, that indicates that perhaps it's not uh, cost efficient or or, or pregnancy efficient to, to always do the IUI. But that's a topic I find fascinating, but not necessarily one that we should be spending time on the show. Oh, sure, sure. And I could definitely go off on that because I do think it's I think it's it's kind of fascinating. Um, Linda, could you tell us some about, we've mentioned the uh, uh, type, of, uh, and I've mentioned the word gonadotropins. Uh, could you give us some of the brand names? Because people might know them better from the brand names. And then also the trigger injection. Tell us the names of drugs people might hear um, associated with 
uh, either, uh, say, let's say, an IVF cycle. Absolutely. Uh, some of the name brands for the gonadotropins would be Folliston, Breval, Gonalaf, Repronex, and Menipure. Both Folliston and Gonalaf come in a pen-type device where the other medications are mixed with powder and diluent. As far as HCGs are concerned, you could have the generic, which is human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG. You could also have Ovidrel, which becomes in a prefilled syringe. You could have Pregnil or Novarel, and those are all medications that trigger ovulation. The other type of drugs that you may see in an IVF cycle would be your agonist, which we refer to as Lupron, and this is one of the drugs that helps to prevent premature ovulation, as well as your antagonist, which is your Ganorelix in your centratide, which does a rapid reversible suppression, same thing, to try and prevent any kind of premature ovulation. And lastly would be your progesterones, which would be your progesterone in oil, which could come as sesame, cottonseed, ethyl oleate, as well as uh, vaginal, endometrin, and crinone. Okay. And, Andy, what is the difference between the uh, – we have a question on this, but I'm going to try to summarize it because uh, she's gone into a lot of detail. Um, she is trying to understand the difference between uh, the two administering types of gonadotropins, the pen type and the mix, which Linda just uh, referred to. Can you go a little further into? Is there her basic? Uh, the underlying question is: Is one better than the other? Uh, you know, from a, a clinical perspective, you know, the studies show that there's no no difference in the medications. Uh, I, I guess uh, I mean it's subjective as far as. What, what type of de- a device you might use, what pin device you might use uh, is, is easier to, to use when you're going through treatment. Uh, you know, and then there's the, the, the mixing of the, of the medications as well with the, with the urinary products. But, uh, like, for example, the Gonalef pin is a pre-filled uh, pin device. The medication, there's no mixing there. The, the medication's already mixed up. It's already inside the pin. And the patients just go ahead and dial the dose up and, and then simply inject. The Folliston pin is a little bit different. You just insert a pre-filled cartridge into the pin device. Again, you dial the dose and go ahead and inject. The urinary gonadotropins, um, probably you could label them as the first-generation gonadotropins, those need to be uh, mixed uh, until you get to the dose that is prescribed. So you would, you know, mix one medication, one vial, and then, take the diluent out of that and then mix another one until you get to the dose uh, that's needed. So uh, as far as the medications are concerned, I mean, most studies show that, you know, they're, they're clinically equivalent, um, but uh, some doctors prefer, uh, you know, uh, certain medications over others, you know, mm-hmm. based on pa- patient prognosis. Right, and their their knowledge of the and, and both their comfort and, and their procedure as well as their knowledge of the patient itself. Yeah. Um, Dan, we have a question from uh, Bethany. Uh, she wants to know, why in the world are they putting me on birth control if I'm trying to get pregnant? Um, <laughs> so if you could, if you could uh, I think uh, Bethany is probably at the very beginning stages. So if you could talk to uh, answer her question, please. Sure. Um, so the reason, the kind of the reasoning behind putting a patient on birth control is that so much with infertility treatment is time sensitive. So they want to have... Um, 
all of the timing down completely. Um, they want to reduce the possibility of any kind of dominant follicle from a past cycle. So they put them on usually a month of birth control to kind of give them kind of a, a fresh canvas to work with. Um, so they'll have the patient start with that that first month of birth control to quiet the ovaries down. That way they can time everything for that, that next month to do an IVF or to do an IUI. Oh, I love that, a fresh canvas. I'm going to use that expression. That is perfect. Um, that I'm going to borrow that one. That's good. Um, we have a question from Leslie Ann. She says, I'm new to all of this and have so many questions about it all. Thank you so much for the topic of today's show. Um, my questions are all real basic. We are hoping to cycle sometime in early 2013. Do the medications, well, let's see, she's got a lot. Do the medications have to be refrigerated? And if so, is it better to buy at a local pharmacist so that they can stay refrigerated on the way home? Brian, if you could address that, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Um, depending on what medication you receive, uh, certainly a lot of the injectables are refrigerated. Some aren't. Uh, depends on what the physician prescribes. They'll have their preference. Uh, in regards to getting it from a local pharmacy, uh, sometimes that can be tricky. A, a lot of the local pharmacies, they don't specialize in fertility. Uh, sometimes I've heard of those pharmacies not understanding the storage requirements and possibly not storing it in the refrigerator uh, or other concerns. It might be tough to get it from the local pharmacy. Uh, I can't speak for all pharmacies. You know, I'm sure there's some really good ones out there, uh, but you have to be careful. Uh, as far as getting it, you know, sent through the mail, um, you know, I know our pharmacy, we, we validate that packaging. Uh, so we know that if it needs to be refrigerated, it's going to be refrigerated that entire time that it's in transit uh, to the patient. Uh, if there's any trouble, you know, if you're not home to receive it for some reason um, and we need to reship it, we'll, we will do that, you know, without question because we want to make sure that your medication arrives and it's going to be you know, fully potent for you. Uh, so getting it, you know, through the mail is not an issue. Um, and, in fact, the majority of, of the country uh, will get it through the mail. The, so, it, yeah, and I think that what a lot of people don't realize, um, because this is all new um, to a lot of people, is that you can receive, I see this on our um, Facebook group, it is certainly possible to receive things that have been refrigerated through shipment. Um, it seems obvious to those people who, who are involved in this, but it's not so obvious for people who don't routinely receive refrigerated packages. Sure, they don't. Uh, it's not a normal thing to, you know, go through treatment at home for anything, never mind yeah, fertility. Yeah, exactly, yep. exactly. Stuart, is, is, uh, given the nature of these medications, uh, is it important that that people not be traveling? Uh, is it uh, if you if you have a job or uh, or for whatever reason need to be traveling during treatment? Is it possible to get medications that would be geared for say non non don't require refrigeration or are are easier to administer or whatever? Is that or do you really need to work out so that you're going to be uh, in town during during that? During this treatment, during the actual treatment process, um, I just, uh, if I can just hop back to the last question, um, sure, in getting getting fertility drugs at the the quote local pharmacy, um, it, it's typically, uh, you know, as I think as I think it was Dan that said, it, it's it can be very tricky and indeed sometimes dangerous because these play these local pharmacies usually don't stock these medications and in fact they may be able to order them. But if you're in the if you're if you need if you're in the in the um, if you need a refill, 
and you and, and just the nature of fertility treatments, you know, dosages change in the middle of everything, and you could be faced with needing a refill immediately, and they won't have it. So you could be jeopardizing your whole cycle. So I guess my point is that no matter which fertility pharmacy you use, you should use a fertility pharmacy. Whether it's Freedom or Village or any one of they're probably in the country, they're probably about 30 or so mm -hmm. specialty pharmacies that really concentrate on fertility. And that's where, in my estimation, people really should be going. Even the okay. large PBM pharmacies like the Caremarks and so on, they really they really can't do a good job in fertility because it is sort of unique. Um, so I just wanted to make that point. Okay. Um, as far as traveling, um, it, it, it's interesting because we find that a lot of the drugs that do require refrigeration, technically, are actually good at room temperature for varying lengths of time. So it gets a little bit not confusing, but you, but once you know what's going on, it, it makes things a little bit easier. For instance, the Folistam pens and the Gonalef pens. To get the maximum life out of them, they are good in the refrigerator until the expiration date that's actually on the box. Once it comes to room temperature, they're good for 90 days. So traveling with these is really not an issue. Um, there are I would other assume you would have to avoid extreme heats, but you could easily do Extremes of heat, yeah. absolutely, right. Mm -hmm. right. That's sort of the kiss of death to all of these things. Almost all of them is extremes of heat. Yeah. Um, and, and, but there are other drugs that really um, do have to be constantly refrigerated. So, but that can be, you can achieve that, you know, in a hotel room with it has a refrigerator or with an ice pack and a little, you know, you know, a little insulated pouch or something, usually is sufficient. So traveling with these drugs is absolutely doable. Okay, excellent. Before we leave the topic of local versus specialized, and, and some specialized can also be local, let me let Andy uh, weigh in on that as well. Uh, would you agree with everything that's been said about the need for a specialized pharmacy? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think most patients don't need to... Uh, worry a whole lot about choosing a pharmacy or finding a specialty pharmacy that um, works very closely with the infertility medications. Most of the providers out there, uh, the, the reproductive endocrinologists that you might be visiting, they're aware of where to refer the prescriptions. A lot of times what's happening is the patients aren't walking out the door with a prescription in hand. Many times, Don, the, the prescriptions are uh, faxed into the specialty pharmacy the pharmacy then makes an outbound call to patient, collects insurance information, and then collects the copay. Or if it's cash, they collect the the uh, the amount for the for the product, and then the product is shipped overnight to the patient uh, in a cool box. So uh, a lot of times, I mean, the providers, especially in the infertility space, are going to be fully aware of these 30 or so pharmacies that specialize in infertility, and they kind of take the ball there in helping the patient get the medications and the care that they need from a pharmacy level. Well, you know, we got a question on this, and, and uh, we are seeing, and uh, when, I can't say it's just been the last year, it's probably been the last couple of years, an uptick in interest in this topic in general uh, about uh, 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 the best prices for fertility meds, and it seems to be that there is an uptick in interest in patients 
wanting to take more charge of selecting. Um, here's a question we got uh, from uh, Shaban that would uh, kind of sub, which is reflective of what we hear not infrequently. Uh, she says, "We are paying for our treatment out of pocket, and I plan on being very active in managing the process and the cost." Can I select where to buy my fertility drugs, or do I have to go where my doctor suggests? Uh, and then her next question is, is more general, and I want to. Uh, I'm going to come back to that because it's. Uh, I don't want to quite. But so, and and we see people. Um, I, I think perhaps because the it seems like we have a highly educated audience. Um, I, I suppose um, all fields believe that their uh, their patient community is educated, but it does seem that we have a fairly educated and and be, and I think it, more important it's because they're often paying for it themselves that they uh, have a, a specific interest in controlling costs tighter than they might in other areas of healthcare. So I'd like to kind of um, throw out the question and and to to uh, uh, let's say well, I. It's a big enough panel, I just can't throw it in general. Uh, let me go to Stuart first, uh, but I'd also like to hear some of your other opinions on this, whether uh, patients should be active in selecting or should they just go where their uh, doctor uh, suggests as far as the pharmacist with which to buy their uh, fertility medications. Um, well, it's interesting because most physicians' offices that are located in what I would call, quote, you know, big self-pay areas. I mean, in the nationally, there are. I mean, as I'm sure you know, there are 15 states that have mandates to cover infertility right. under insurance. Uh, even that within means those 15, don't. <laughs> right, 35 yeah. don't. And also, even within those 15, the mandates are all over the place as far as sort of what I call, you know, how intense they are. You know, exactly. we're in Massachusetts. Here, where we're located, we have a very liberal mandate. So the self-pay population is, 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 I would say, almost negligible. Not quite negligible, but almost. In other states, the, the, the mandates are very restrictive, so it may almost non-existent. Um, but by all estimates, we think that about 50% of the country has insurance for, for fertility drugs and about 50% doesn't. So it's a huge population that doesn't. Yeah. Um, but to get back to the physicians, usually the physicians' offices, if they're in self-pay uh, areas, know which pharmacies have, you know, have have reasonable prices. Not necessarily, you know, the cheapest price. I mean, some pharmacies may have, you know, cheaper prices, but the physician may view the services of one ph another pharmacy may might be tailored more for that particular patient. So, um, I think they sort of refer based on that, but other physicians' practices certainly uh, will give the say to the patient outright to, you know, just go and price these drugs at various places and we'll be happy to forward, you know, the prescriptions, you know, to whichever pharmacy you choose. So it sort of runs the gamut as far as, mm -hmm. you know, the patient certainly has always the right to say that I want this prescription to go to the pharmacy of my choosing legally that you, you cannot force a patient to go to one pharmacy or another mm -hmm. Don, this is Linda and just yeah. to add to that what I would add is 
from a patient's perspective is that you want to make sure that they're getting all of the medications they need when they need them. So when the patient goes out and decides to price, which is absolutely within their right, you want to make sure that they probably go to one pharmacy and not multiple specialty pharmacies, only because it's, everything is time sensitive. So if indeed uh, the clinic says go out and price and do what you know you need to do in order to find the best price, that's great. But my recommendation would be for that patient to just stick with one for specialty pharmacy because it, then things can get more and more complicated. The other piece that I would just say is that a lot of times the clinics across the country end up forming relationships and knowing the people within the pharmacy. So sometimes from a nursing perspective, it's just easier for that nurse to send the prescription to whatever pharmacy that they have a relationship with, and then they don't have to worry about it. And because everything can be complicated with the fertility meds, the nurse from the IVF standpoint, from the IVF coordinator, she doesn't want to have to worry about it either. She wants to be able to send the prescription over, know that the patient's going to be taken care of, know that the patient's going to receive what they need when they need it, and have no you know, further up phone calls about what's going on or she didn't receive one thing but she got another. So from a nursing perspective and patient, the one thing I would recommend is keep it with one pharmacy for that one cycle. Uh, Brian, let me ask you this question. And, and uh, does, it, does the least expensive pharmacy depend on which medication is being prescribed? Do do uh, specific uh, pharmaceutical companies have arrangements with different specialty pharmacies? Oh, Don, this is actually Dan. Brian's actually had to um, take a call from a patient, so I can field that question for you if you'd like. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so um, when it comes to self-pay patients and um, pharmacies, you know, that specialize with self-pay pricing, um, you absolutely can see somewhat of a range between the prices um, depending on the manufacturers and the different cash pay programs that they participate in. So we always, I would always say to a patient, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're planning on a cycle, you know, get a, get a list of what your doctor thinks they're going to put you on and then do your price shopping because it's important to know, you know, for example, with the FSHs, with, you know, Gonal, Folosim, and Brevel, you're going to encounter pharmacies that have varying prices on each of those. So you certainly want to have an idea, at least a rough idea of what the doctor thinks they're going to put you on so you can find the pharmacy that does have um, the best price for that specific agent. That makes sense. Andy, how would a, a patient uh, um, figure out after they've talked with the doctor and have a feel for what the doctor is, is going to uh, prescribe for them, um, how, how would they find out which pharmacy has a relationship with the uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer of that particular medication, or is that really even necessary for them to do? Uh, well, I think that's, you know, it, it, it comes down to this. I mean, there are about, like Stuart said earlier, about 30 or so pharmacies that uh, have these uh, programs that they participate in that allow, uh, you know, patients to, uh, uninsured patients to buy medications at a discounted price. And those pharmacies are, you know, encompass Freedom Drug, which is, you know, uh, a pharmacy that works very closely with uh, Priority Healthcare and uh, ESI. And uh, there is the Design RX Network, which is made up of about 30 or so pharmacies. And these pharmacies also are contracted with uh, a couple of the manufacturers out there to, uh, to provide patients with discounted prices. So, you know, if you go to www.designrx.net, 
you can see all the pharmacies uh, there that participate in these types of programs. And then uh, in addition to that, there's there's Freedom Drug Pharmacy as well, Freedom Pharmacy. As well as Village uh, Fertility village, as well. Yeah, and Village is in the Design RX program, so they would see gotcha. Village on that site. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, now I want to, uh, if you remember back to uh, Leslie Ann, who is new at all this, uh, she also wrote in her uh, question, I am terrified of needles, so my husband is really worried about giving me the shots. Can we get a nurse to do it or a pharmacist, or how can we get him trained really good? I would like this question to be addressed by the <laughs> two nursing people because, I, you know, although I'm at least smiling as I read this, it is a reality. I, I will say to Leslie Ann that it is something that the fear is usually people usually say that the anticipation is worse than the reality but that's again as with cost easy for me to say and not necessarily since i'm not the one being stuck and especially not being stuck by my husband so um linda let me start with you and then and dan also since you are both nurses i'd like to get uh your input on um how the medications not all are, are administered by uh uh injection but let's talk about uh, just kind of general how often are shots actually required, and then we'll talk about training and tricks and things such as that. Linda? Okay. When you're talking about an IVF cycle, there are um, quite a few injections within that process. Under, like in a standard IVF cycle, so to speak, and nothing's really standard, is that they would probably do one injection in the morning, and then they would either do one in the evening or two in the morning, two in the evening. So it, it is, without question, scary. There's no, you know, when they're first starting to do it. The number one thing that I would tell any patient is to prepare yourself. You know, read, get, go through the information, learn, do the teaching. As far as the pen devices are concerned, once the patient does it once, they actually feel very comfortable. And the same thing with all of the medications that need to be mixed. All they need to do is figure out that it's not going to hurt half as much as they think it is. And make no mistake, it still hurts. I'm not minimizing it. But I think the first injection is the worst. And once they do the first injection, they say, oh, that wasn't as bad as I had expected. Uh, when you get to the progesterones, which is an intramuscular injection, if indeed the patient has to do that, that's a little bit, uh, makes them a little more sore based on the fact that you're injecting an oil or the ethyl oleate, and it's done intramuscularly. So it's a, a bigger needle. Uh, most of the needles that are used within a cycle for an IVF are a, what we call subcutaneous. It's like a half-inch needle. It ends up, when you're mixing the medication, you may be using a bigger needle, but when you switch to actually give the injection, it's a small needle. And once they do it once or twice, they're like, okay, this wasn't as bad. Yeah, I, I, I really think that that is the reality, but, you know, I do understand where Leslie Ann is coming from. Absolutely. Dan, Dan can you recommend any uh Tips, uh, tips of the trade for uh, lessening the either the anticipatory fear or the actual uh, making the process itself easier. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think anticipation is that's such a, a good word to use. A lot of it is just the build up to the first night injection, um, and just like um, you know, Linda had said, once they get that first one under their belt, it's usually a good go from there. Um, Pardon the pun. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so some advice for um, you know, for kind of that first that first time is definitely um check your supplies. You know, we always say, you know, 
any pharmacy you're going to go to is going to say, once you get a, get the package, make sure you have everything. So that way you're not, you know, coming to 6 o'clock when you're doing your first injection and you realize you're missing a needle or something like that. So um, we always say to patients, you know, put everything together. And then, um, you know, I think uh, I would always tell patients, if you're that uncomfortable with the first time, call, you know, call the pharmacy you used. Most pharmacies that specialize in fertility are going to have 24-hour, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week support. So even if you're in, you know, California and it's, it's 9 o'clock your time, so it's, you know, close to midnight um, on the East Coast where your pharmacy might be located, you know, give them a call. They're going to have somebody there that you can page that can walk you through step-by-step step, mixing the medication, injecting the medication. Um, and I would say, you know, don't be, don't feel foolish to call. If you feel like something went wrong when you're injecting, um, err on the side of caution and call. Call either your pharmacy or call your nurse. You know, and, and let me reiterate what Dan has just said and reemphasize. Um, one of the true advantages of using a specialty pharmacy is the uh, support that they give. And I know of, of people who have had the, there are um, most of the uh, uh, pharmacies have nurses on staff, and I know of people who have posted on our uh, support group that they had the nurse on speakerphone while mm-hmm. <laughs> while they were going literally through the process, talking everything through, uh, and uh, made me really think what a saint those nurses must have been. But nonetheless, it um, it is a and it was and you also of course depending on what clinic you're using, um, and and, uh, you may well have a a nurse at the clinic too, but um, don't underestimate the resources and support that can can be provided um, by a um, uh, uh, a specialized uh, pharmacist and, and pharmacy. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. This show is produced with the support of our sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. Today's show is on understanding and affording fertility meds. We are pleased to have a wonderful panel of experts as uh, to help us untangle the web of uh, understanding on uh, fertility medications. We have Stuart Levine. He is the owner and pharmacist at Village Fertility. We have Linda Romano. She is the director of clinical nursing, again, at uh, Village Fertility Pharmacies. We have Brian Marquis. He is the pharmacy director at Freedom Fertility Pharmacy, and along with Dan McLaughlin, who is a registered nurse and a case manager at Freedom Fertility. And last but certainly not least, we have Andy Gairani. He is the Vice President of Business Development at Design RX. Um, now, guys, I want to uh, uh, talk. We, we, we mustn't leave this discussion, unfortunately, any discussion uh, that we have concerning uh, fertility. We... Um, have to talk about the money aspect, uh, and in particular, insurance. Um, insurance is a huge issue. As we've mentioned already on the show, there are states that mandate that uh, insurance providers selling insurance within the state uh, must cover uh, infertility, uh, infertility treatment, the disease of infertility, um, although, as was pointed out well, that uh, what is mandated varies greatly. Uh, as well, and then we have the majority of states which have no mandate, so therefore it's up to the individual, uh, oftentimes the individual uh, employers, as to whether or not insurance is covered in their uh, in their package. So it, it, let's start 
with the assumption that you are not well, well, I guess we should. Let's start in in the best case scenario, um, which uh, and Andy, I'd like to start with you uh, that uh, you are in a mandated state. I would assume that most mandated states, uh, the typical medications that have been t- discussed, uh, fertility meds that have been discussed on this show, would be covered as a matter of course through your insurance. Is that a correct assumption? It is for the most part. I mean, most folks in in mandated states are going to have a flat copay for some of these fertility medications, or they might have uh, what they ha- uh, call a coinsurance, where they need to pay a percentage, uh, like a 20% or 30% of the of the total ticket. So there's a flat copay, there's a coinsurance. A lot of people in mandated states will just have will have that, and and, and that's good uh, for the most part. But in some of the mandated states, there are um, uh, exclusions uh, for the, the mandate. There are uh, self-insured employer groups, for example, in the mandated states, most of the time don't need to offer a fertility benefit to their employees if they don't choose to do so. Um, and uh, Or there are, like, for example, in the state of Illinois, if, if an employer uh, employs less than 25 employees, they're excluded from having to provide the fertility benefit down to uh, their, their uh, employees. So, I would say across the board, for the most part, most patients in mandated states have coverage, but there is a a small subgroup that does not. Okay. Now, unfortunately, we have to also assume that um, a lot of our listeners will be in uh, self-pay or non-mandate states. Uh, And so, Stuart, let's start with you and say, now, is there, if you do not have fertility coverage, in your insurance, your health insurance, does there, is there any way you can get these medications covered under insurance? Well, typically, if there's no coverage for, for fertility drugs, um, there's there's a well. We're talking more. We're talking mostly about the prescription benefit. Now, there's also people who have insurance typically would have a medical benefit and they would have a prescription benefit. If they have prescription coverage at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, possibly there could be some coverage under the medical benefit for these things. But, uh, again, that's really not the norm. Um, So, and I just want to also reiterate, just because it's a mandated state doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any coverage for for some of these things. because some of the mandates are very restrictive. Um, so typically, if there's no co- fertility coverage, um, but there are other drugs that are used within a fertility cycle that are, quote, unquote, not classified as fertility drugs. For instance, one of the drugs that we were talking about, Luprolide, before, um, which is an agonist that's used in an IVF cycle to suppress um, the pituitary, um, that may in fact be covered under somebody's regular prescription benefit because it's not technically classified as a fertility drug. You have some of the progesterone compounds that may in fact you know, go through with no, with no problem. Um, we have a lot of ancillary drugs that are used, some antibiotics, for instance, um, that are used within a treatment cycle. So there are some things that you know, you may just 
sort of dismiss and say they don't have coverage, so they're not covered, but they really would be covered. Uh, Dan, does it matter how it's coded? Um, because as I'm understanding um, what you are all telling me, it's possible that it could be covered under something else because it has another use. But if indeed the use is for and being prescribed by a reproductive endocrinologist and is for an IVF cycle, um, is there a way to uh, uh, be above board but code it in such a way that your insurance will pay for it? Um, in regards to coding, most of the time when you're going to be billing through a pharmacy coverage, which is what any pharmacy is going to start off doing, uh -huh. um, you're not going to really send any kind of procedural information. So therefore, when I when you transmit a drug, you're not going to say this is strictly being used for IVF. Um, the time that the use really comes into question is if your insurance has um, added kind of an extra layer for you of what's called a prior authorization requirement, which basically is the insurance company's way of saying, you know, we're not sure if we're going to cover this until we find out exactly what it's being used for. At that point, your physician's office would indicate to the insurance that, yes, this is being used for, you know, an IVF procedure or an IUI procedure, and then based off of the coverage that your plan has established, they would say, um, yes, we'll cover it. In regards to, like, the ancillary medications that Stuart had mentioned, um, those ones have so many different uses, you know, um, the estrogen patches or the esterase tablets that you're going to take, the progesterone products, those can be used for a, a multiple different diagnosis. So the insurance companies will usually just have a blanket kind of approval for those ones because they're they're not they're not insanely expensive in most in most forms um so they kind of don't don't really require that extra bit of information when you're getting into the gonadotropins that's when you're going to run into situations where um you know gonalef and qualism and Bravel, those really are only used when you're going through some kind of infertility treatment okay so those you're probably out of luck uh and one of the things that is a, another benefit, it, it's, it is very, the whole issue of insurance is a maze, and it is extraordinarily difficult to figure out on your own. Um, and, and oftentimes you're not wanting to rely on your, uh, uh, your company's uh, human resources person or, or insurance person. You're trying to figure it out, and uh, your doctor, your reproductive endocrinologist may well have somebody who is quite knowledgeable, but, uh, and, and you should absolutely avail yourself of their expertise. But many of the uh, specialty pharmacies, including both uh, Village and Freedom and, and the ones in the uh, Design RX network, uh, will have uh, people on staff who can help walk you through uh, in detail and specifics to your case um, any you know what you're what you're being prescribed and what and and looking at your insurance what your chances are so you uh, of getting it covered and 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 how to go about that so you're not totally on your own um, we have a couple of questions that deal with safety of the meds side effects uh, so I'm just I think I'd like to talk about just in general, and we've mentioned a lot of different um, medications, so if we could lump them more kind of generally uh, to the uh, clomiphene citrate letrozole, then into the gonadotropins, into the progesterones, into the, if you see where I'm going, uh, and talk about are there any significant side effects or safety issues that we need to be aware of. Uh, Brian, are you back on uh, off of your call with your patient? Yes, I am, Don. Thank you very much. Okay, good. I will. Uh, if you could talk uh, in general about some of the, uh, uh, pick one of those broad categories and talk about any safety and side effect um, 
it's interesting because a lot of times from a patient, it's not, I was really surprised we got questions because honestly, um, most of our audience at this point uh, is willing to risk a whole lot of, of side effects because they they very much want a child. So it's a little interesting to me. I was not expecting to get any questions on that. So, uh, it, yeah. It's a great question that comes up. And, you know, interesting enough, I think it's almost helpful to speak to it, you know, sort of broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of fear of, you know, um, estrogen and, and hormones. There was, you know, the Women's Health Initiative study uh, that linked it possibly to cancer risk. Uh, so when we think in terms of fertility treatment, you know, a lot of that involves possibly, you know, overstimulation, you know, creating, you know, injecting hormones. Um, so there, that's sort of a, a fear that's created there. Um, the the things that I, I need to talk about, I think, first off, is you need to find a reputable reproductive endocrinologist. Um, this isn't something that, you know, you would go to a regular OB for. Um, I think if you know, if your physician's not specializing in this and they're trying to treat you for it, I, I advise, you know, those patients not to, to do that and possibly run the other way uh, because usually the side effects that can occur, um, you know, are overstimulation. And that only happens now if the physician isn't monitoring as they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, with proper monitoring, overstimulation um, is it, just not an issue. Um, you know, if you read the package inserts for some of these medications, like the FSHs, the Gonol, the Folistum, the Brevel, uh, the Menopure, um, they're going to have a black box warning that talks about the risk of over-hyperstimulation, uh, where the ovary is overstimulated, it, it enlarges, and in some cases it could become life-threatening. Um, in the seven and a half years that I've been here, however, um, there's been no case that I've ever heard or talked to a patient or uh, I speak to physicians all the time. Uh, it's just not an issue for them. It'd only be an issue if a prescriber was doing a high dose possibly on a patient that he did not do a proper workup on where the patient might be a good responder already and he's trying to give or the physician's trying to give that patient um, you know, too, much, too much medication and not monitoring the patient. Um, so that, that's my first bit of advice. Um, Generally, you know, the side effects, if there's any, they're very short-term. You know, these treatments last, you know, usually only, you know, about 20 days or so. Um, you know, so usually the, you know, things like nausea or bloating, uh, usually they're very short-term. And in talking to your pharmacist, and we have resources online, you can, you can see what those side effects are and, and talk through them. And definitely talk to your physician, you know, about any concerns you have, uh, whether it's side effects during you know, your treatment, or even long-term side effects. Um, you know, fertility is somewhat new, fertility treatment, um, but in the data that's there, um, it's highly suggested that, you know, our, these patients actually may be better off if they have children and have gone IVF and have never had, you know, compared to patients that haven't had children at all. Uh, so there's some health benefits um, for women, you know, to have been pregnant and to have a baby. Uh, so it's a possibility that, you know, for long-term side effects, that it might be positive. I don't think the data is conclusive. You know, I, I think you need to speak definitely to the reproductive endocrinologist. They're the, they're the experts on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all patients should just know that there's, there's a lot of resources out there for them to read. And if they ever have any questions and not sure what they're reading, you know, call your physician, call your nurse, or, or call your pharmacist. Uh, there's a lot we can help you out with. 
Linda, any other uh, general side effects that are fairly common, although and perhaps either long-term or short-term? I was thinking in terms of short-term when I asked the question, but I suppose uh, we should think in terms of long-term as well. Any other uh, just that patients should be aware of and uh, not, uh, not, not necessarily worry over, but just be aware of? Yes. I mean, there are definitely some general side effects that they may get by taking these medications. Uh, things of like breast tenderness, a headache, a little bit of weight gain, um, and swelling of the ovaries. I mean, people can actually get to the point of being really nauseous, vomiting, insomnia. I mean, when they take the Lupron and the agonist, you know, they can tend to sometimes get hot flashes and sweating and mood swings. A lot of times when I talk to patients, I will tell them that, you know, sometimes you feel premenstrual. I mean, that's just the, uh, a blanket way of saying that mm-hmm. you're taking all these medications and you basically feel premenstrual. As far we kind as of say PMS on steroids. Exactly. I yeah. mean, and that's and, and that's how they feel. And you know, you feel so bad for the patients because they're trying so hard to have a baby, and it sometimes can be puzzling, especially after an IVF cycle, and they're taking progesterone, and they have this breast tenderness, and they feel that they're literally going to begin their menses, and they could be pregnant. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a, it's a hard time for them as well. With the progesterone, the only the other thing I would say is sometimes with the progesterone injection, you can get uh, small hard bumps on the skin, and a little bit because you're injecting the oil, and that's with the intramuscular injection. And sometimes that they they can tend to hurt, especially if you're taking it for weeks and weeks if you do become pregnant. Mhm. Yeah. Okay. We got an interesting question, which um, I was glad we received one on this because I know that there is a lot of talk on not so much our uh, uh, group but on other forums um, about um, uh, leftover medication. So this one's from Philippa. She says, I have medication leftover from my last cycle. I would like to either give them away or maybe sell them for a reduced fee. I'd like to hear your guests talk about this option, even though they are probably biased. Uh, well, at least she's giving you some credit, guys. Um, so, Andy, if you'd like to take a stab at uh, at addressing, uh, as I'm sure there's no surprise to any of you, there is kind of an underground out there um, on um, getting um, medications from uh, from other people, from other patients. So, Andy, I'm... Like it or not, I'm directing this one to you. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. I mean, um, I mean, even though that's a that's a very noble thing to to, to try and think about doing, I I, uh, I would caution her to, to not do that. I um, I know that there probably is some there are some specific state laws that you know inhibit you know folks from from uh, from doing that and, and to be very careful. And then secondly, if you're uh, you know a, a potential purchaser of, of medication from uh, an entity that is is not a, a licensed pharmacy. Um, you really got one shot or two shots at you know you know maybe going through infertility treatment, especially if your cash pay and, your, and funds are limited, and you really don't want to take any chances, in my opinion, on uh, purchasing medication that is from a, a source that is uh, that, that you're not 100% sure is is uh, is credible and, and and licensed to do so. Uh, does anybody else know if there are um, 
legal, uh, and I realize that we don't have a lawyer on, so I let me caution everybody up front that uh, nobody's a lawyer, so don't take this as legal advice. But are there any legal implications for giving uh, your medication to somebody? And then the the converse question is: Are there any legal uh, ramifications that you might know of to selling? Uh, you are assuming you're not selling even at a profit, just selling, recouping your expense. Um, let me start with you, Stuart. Uh, do you know of any? And if anybody else does, then after Stuart has had a chance, if somebody will speak up. Okay, well, just to expound a little bit on what Andy said, as far as I am aware, I believe in every state, it is absolutely, let's just put it this way, there are only a couple of entities that can legally sell prescription medications, one being a licensed pharmacy, and and in some states a doctor's office can actually sell medications as well. As far as individuals selling prescription medications to one another, I believe it is absolutely illegal everywhere. Um, Now, again, it's a noble, maybe a noble effort, but, and again, it's sort of, as Andy said, it's buyer beware. you know, you you want to give yourself the best chance for success, and given you know limited resources, I understand it's very tempting to go on these websites and you, and you know what they are, Don. I mean, that are solely devoted to selling fertility drugs. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot out there. There's a lot out there, and I would just caution everybody that it's there. It's absolutely illegal to do that. Um, now. Um, whether it's legal or not to give it to somebody, I would say the same rules apply. You're dispensing a medication, and there are only certain legal entities that are really allowed to dispense medication. And, I mean, it may sound self-serving. We're all sort of in the pharmacy business, but it becomes very dicey. And what really happens is, you know, there are people that are doing this through with really a noble sort of um, end result in mind. Then there are people that are doing this as a cottage industry, okay? There are people that are on there that, and we had a case in Massachusetts, and the woman is actually in jail. She she fraudulently got prescription gonadotropins on her insurance and then sold them on the Internet to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there oh, are people the out there. Oh. Right. Yeah. And I, we, I was involved in the case. So... Uh, there are people out there that are doing that. So how are you, as a consumer, how are you supposed to know who's who? There's only one way to know who's who, and that's to go to a legitimate pharmacy for the products. Well, on that note, we have and we have run out of time. This is a topic that has uh, so many different avenues to discuss. Thank you all so much for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Now, I uh, let me recommend that uh, for our listeners uh, to go to all, all three of the entities here today, uh, Design RX, Freedom Fertility, and Village uh, Fertility Pharmacies, all have excellent websites that provide a lot of resources, instructions, and information uh, on fertility meds. Uh, to get to Village Fertility Pharmacy, their website is, you're going to guess it here, villagefertilitypharmacy.com. For Freedom Fertility, uh, all these I'm going to add now are easy uh, URLs for you to remember. It's freedomfertility.com. And for Design RX, we have uh, their website is fertilitybydesign.com. To stay in touch with the latest developments 
in infertility or adoption, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, sign up for the weekly newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Dad. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.